There had been a, a great famine in the area. And because of the famine, um, large groups of people came to the country where there was less of a famine. They came to that country for, for refuge, for, you know, just to be able to live, to keep their culture going. But after a time, uh, the, the rulers of that country grew tired of these people, right? These, these foreigners who came. They became an obstacle to them. It, and in fact, that country's economy began to falter. And so the, the rulers of that country or the ruler of that country decided that the best thing to do was to blame this new people for the ills of the country. And so he enslaved all of those people. This was the Egyptians. And those people were the Jews. Another example. The Republic had overextended itself to most of Europe and even into the Near East. And economically, it was faltering. Uh, politically, it had always been somewhat unstable, and it was at this time as well. But the Republic was basically dying, and the rulers knew it. But they knew to maintain their power, they didn't want to get the blame, just like the Egyptians. Right? Because if the citizens realized that the rulers were actually becoming incompetent or always had been, then what would happen to them? So to maintain their power, they blamed a new group of people. It was their fault. They were the ones destabilizing the empire. And so those people were brought into amphitheaters and coliseums. They were fed to lions. They were killed. And this sated the desire of the Roman people to have someone to blame as the Christians were slaughtered. There's another country, I'll use three, you'll get the point. There's another country who had just finished a war, had fallen into economic ruin. And then one man came along and said, I, I can save us. I can do it. I'm your savior. But for him to be a savior, he needed scapegoats. And in that country, the people who were doing well, financially and otherwise, tended to be Jewish. And Adolf Hitler decided that he could be the savior. And unfortunately, many of the people did as well as the economy recovered. But to further his plan, his final solution, he had to exterminate those he had scapegoated. 
over and over and over throughout history, people, the people, see that in their civilization, their country, something is wrong. Something is amiss. And those in power always find a way to scapegoat some group. Now, this doesn't just happen in in culture or in politics. This happens in families. Right? You can have all kinds of unrest just in a, in a family. And if you watch, very often, some one person in the family where there's a lot of conflict will become the problem. And people within that family will jockey to show who's really the problem. And then once that person is the problem, everyone can pile on. This is exactly what's happening in our culture. And, you know, I'm going to be making comments about politics, but from a larger perspective, not for any kind of lobbying purpose. But if you just see what's going on in culture right now, in the culture, which is literally burning, which should not surprise us at all, given what has happened and transpired over the last 30 years, Both political parties, the main ones, are trying to persuade the citizens that they are the savior, that they will fix it. And you wonder why politics has become so uh, dichotomized, right? If If you're on that side, you're not just wrong or have a difference of opinion, you're evil. And the same thing with the other side. That's what politicians want. They drive that because it makes the vote easier. Further, I remember when I became sort of politically aware. I think it was somewhere around the end of uh, Clinton, second term. And um, anyway, so I remember, though, back at that time and then in the early years of, of George Bush, the, the immigration issue. You know, we have all these foreign workers who are not here legally, but we definitely depend on for our economy. And politicians saying, we're gonna, we're gonna fix it. If I get elected, I'm gonna fix it. If I get elected, I'm gonna fix it. To me, it doesn't seem like that difficult of a fix. It's not fixed. The reason it's probably not fixed is because those in power need to set themselves up as the savior. So if you're the people who need to be protected through the immigration issue, one party is going to save you. If you're a person who believes you need to be protected from immigrants, the other party is going to save you. But they can't save you if it's solved. They can't fix anything if there's nothing to be fixed. The reason I'm pointing this out has to do with, again, something that I'm going to revisit, which came up a couple weeks ago, about the idea of victimization and how this can be manipulated in our personal lives and in our social life. Because we see it more and more pronounced in culture that people both believe that they're truly victims who need to be rescued 
And we have people more than willing to set themselves up as the one who will rescue them. But we, we find through history is government never rescues anyone. They can't. Government can never save anybody. Not really. Not a culture. Especially a culture that's fallen into decay. And it should not surprise us that in a culture like ours, like Rome, like Germany in the 30s, like Egypt, like other cultures, it should not surprise us that a culture that has become more and more secular will look for a secular solution to its problems, which means somebody else needs to rescue me. Somebody else needs to fix what's wrong. Now, on the personal level, this happens too, because just about everyone is a victim. Victimization is true, and people have suffered greatly. But as I said a couple of weeks ago, when, when a person incorporates this victimization as a primary facet of their, of their image or identity, they're always going to be looking for somebody else to rescue them. And so a lot of times when relationships go bad, it's because one person is seeking to rescue the other who identifies primarily as victim. By the way, this is called codependency. It's real. It's profound. It affects many people. And when that idea of victimization takes on a societal dimension, then we cease to take personal responsibility and we need somebody else to rescue us. The scapegoat mechanism is, has, has been laid out uh, quite extensively by uh, the sociologist uh, Rene Girard. Worth your time to read and, and watch some of his interviews. The scapegoat mechanism goes throughout cultures and has for centuries. Somebody else is to blame for my problems, and so they must be killed, essentially, sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively. It's somebody else's fault. Now, Jesus comes to Peter, because I think this is a really interesting twist. Jesus comes to Peter right after last week. Peter said, you are the Christ. He gets it right. And then Jesus says, yes, and as the Christ... I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And Peter says, wait a second, that's not what I meant. The Christ, you're supposed to save us militarily or politically. That's how we want to be saved. You know, we have these Roman oppressors. We want you to save us from them. We want you to be a, a sort of new King David, this, this military you know, leader who's going to bring about great prominence and power in the region. That's the kind of savior we want. We want a secular savior. And the Lord rebukes him and says, no. That salvation is fleeting. And that salvation only breeds further resentment and further victimization. The salvation the Messiah came to give and to offer is so much greater 
than what we could ever experience in this life. Although, in this life, we can experience some of it. The Lord Jesus becomes the definitive victim, willingly becoming a victim, not against his will, but according to his will and the Father's will. He becomes victim to transform what happens to victims. As I said, just about everybody here has been a victim of abuse, of racism, of bigotry, and it's sinful and wrong, all of it. And it's happened to so many of us. And it's, it's, it's real and it's true, but it's not the end. It doesn't have to be the end of the story. And there's no human being who will liberate us from that bondage. And the more that we look for somebody else to fix it, the more that a solution will slip through our grasp. The Lord Jesus offers us true liberation. And he says to us that, you know, not only am I going to suffer, but you're going to suffer too. But I want you to do it willingly, knowingly, that suffering will come. But the cross is not the end of the story. The death of Jesus isn't the end of the story. Resurrection is. And so the Lord Jesus comes to us and says, yes, you will endure suffering. You will endure victimization. You will endure a life that is unfair. But I will transform that experience. I will transform you. Folks, I don't, I don't want to get too much into the weeds of politics, so I won't. But I will say this. If we want to transform our society, transform your family. Transform your own personal relationship with Christ. Transform this community. Teach your children that life isn't always going to be fair, even if they work hard. Teach your children that they're going to suffer bigotry or racism or any, kind, any kinds of injustice, but that does not need to be their legacy. That if they work hard, if they work hard, if they allow the Lord Jesus into their life to transform them, then they will not be beholden to any oppressor. For as long as they stay in their victim identity, they give power to their oppressor, whoever it is, whoever abused them, whoever was unjust. When we choose to let that go, this is why forgiveness is so important. When we choose to let that go, when we choose to allow Jesus to be the Savior and not any human person or institution, that's when we start to be transformed and the Lord dwells in us and truly transforms not just ourselves, but our families, our churches, and our culture.